You've recently written a book entitled Music of the Spheres in the Western Imagination, and it's a very fascinating book. Could you tell me uh, how you conceived of the book and why you decided to put together something that is really so wide-ranging in terms of the disciplines that it touches? Yes. Um, well, the maybe the root the foundation of sort of the inspiration for writing the book uh, goes back to 2005 when I first started graduate school at the University of California, Riverside. And one of my very first courses was a, a graduate seminar in the history of music theory. And not very exciting when you just look at the title. And I was like, well, okay, it was the history of textbooks, was the history of teaching. But it goes, it went all the way back, um, you know, to the, the very early medieval world, actually even further back than that into the ancient world, and, you know, traced the, the development of, of music theory, of how people thought about and how they conceived of music, and it was absolutely fascinating to me. It, the, even the, the word, the music of the spheres, you know, when I was a kid, I used to sing in a, you know, church choir, uh, this is my father's world, and to my listening ears all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. And I had no idea what that meant as a seven or eight-year-old kid. <laughs> and, and, and we used to sort of like make fun of that. It's like, oh, the, the music of the spheres, they don't make any sound. And so the, the concept has always been sort of in the background of my mind. Um, but that, that graduate school experience was, was really great because I got to read the the writings of music theorists over centuries and, and kind of how they talked about the nature of music, what it is, how it works, uh, you know, its heavenly components, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And so I'd always been sort of ready to, to write something on the subject, but then, well, COVID hit, mm-hmm. um, and so I had a little more time at home, um, and I just... I went back to it, and I, I read a lot of other things, and, and, and really the reason why I, the book is wider in scope, sort of interdisciplinary in focus, is I got to put together many of my favorite things. So I really love 19th and 20th century English and British literature. I love C.S. Lewis. I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I love hymnody, being a, you know, a church musician and a, and a working music minister for many years. And I noticed this sort of through line, this, uh, this, this line that sort of went through all of these things. And I realized that they were, they're, they're kind of talking about the same thing all mm-hmm. the time, even if they're not using the exact word music of the spheres. And so it just sort of all came together. And the entire book rests on a particular foundation or idea by a particular uh, guy named Boethius. And uh, we were just joking about it before we came in that if you love music, then there should be a fourth B. It shouldn't just be three Bs, but there should be four Bs, and that fourth B should be Boethius. So tell me about what idea he put together, the three categories mm-hmm. of musica, and how even the fact that musica, as it is introduced in his work, is not the kind of music that you know we would understand music to be. Yes, so, uh, well, just to start some basics, Boethius was a... Uh, was a scholar, a Roman scholar. He worked in the what had until very recently been the Western Roman Empire. He served the first non-Roman empire, I think an Ostrogothic king. Um, he himself was a Roman. He was a senator. He was a scholar. So he wrote a number of handbooks that sort of 
boiled down ancient philosophy and thought from the ancient uh, Greek and, and Roman era philosophers to sort of pass that information on into what we now consider to be the early medieval world. And music itself, and we have to think of music as a, as a field or music as a, a line of study or of a line of inquiry, being very different from what we think of today. Of course, you know, your listeners are listening to music, and this mm-hmm. is something that we are listening to, um, music that is composed for you know, any number of purposes. It can be for worship, for entertainment, or, or other things. But the, you know, the ancient curriculum, when we think of the liberal arts curriculum, you know, we, have, we have two categories. Uh, you know, we might call the arts and the sciences. The trivium are the arts, and the quadrivium, the sciences. And and among those, you have you know arithmetic and geometry. You have uh, astronomy, and you have music, sometimes called harmonics. And it's kind of it feels weird with the way that we think of music now to put that in with the sciences. But mm-hmm. the idea of the quadrivium is those were the areas of human study or the areas of human perception that could be measured by numbers, by mathematics. And Plato himself considered um, that among all the uh, parts of the quadrivium, that it was music and astronomy that were most closely related. Because according to Plato, the, the, the truth of the nature of the universe could be detected and measured through your eyes in the uh, practice of astronomy, and the same thing could be measured through the ears in the practice of music by measuring things by use of numbers, by use of Mm -hmm. proportions and mathematics. So we end up, so it's a very different way of thinking of music uh, than we do now. Mm -hmm. It's much more akin to uh, metaphysics, to philosophy, to theology, and, and, and to mathematics. So Boethius becomes a very important character um, in sort of music history because he is responsible for passing on you know, much of what was known of, of ancient Greco-Roman musical thought into the, uh, the Christian uh, medieval world. And everyone you know, uses Boethius. He really should be the 4B. You, <laughs> the read, <fourth> B. <laughs> you read music theory treatises into the late 19th century and they still, the first chapter begins with, what did Boethius say about music? Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing about Musico is that music, as he understood it, was not always heard. Just a small portion of music was heard, and the rest was unheard. Yes. So among the things that Boethius and some of his early disciples, like Isidore of Seville and some others, um, theorized was... You know, the, there are three kinds, three sort of categories of what they called musica, which we would just translate as music. Musica mundana, and when you hear the word mundana, it makes you think of mundane or worldly, but that's only, it only means that in the sense of like globes or spheres or planets or celestial bodies. So you have a music that is caused by the orderly motions, sort of the repeating motions of the celestial bodies, the moon, the stars, the sun, even the regular motions of the seasons of the year. That is the music of the universe, music of what we would call the macrocosmos, the Mm -hmm. the visible, observable universe. And then there's a second category, musica humana, 
human music. And that referred to the balance of elements within the human body itself. You know, ancient uh, physicians, uh, you know, believed that the, the body was made of the, the four humors, four substances, and depending on the balance of those substances, you know, you were either well or you were sick, and if maybe you had too much of one, they would, you know, uh, take a little blood out of a mm. vein, and that would make you better. So the balance within, you know, the human, and the balance among humans in their societies you know, so if, if society, I mean, we even use musical terms. If society, we say we are having a harmonious relationship in our family, that means that we are in tune with each other. Or we can say that I am in harmony, mm-hmm. you know, with myself. I am in good health. And then the third part of music is simply musica instrumentalis. And that's just music that we think of today, things that you hear, uh, music that you make through your voice, through instruments, through other artificial means. Interestingly enough, that was considered the least important of the different kinds of music. The, the more philosophical, the more uh, metaphysical, celestial ideas of music as it related to sort of the, you know, the cosmos and, and the human psyche were considered the most important kinds of music. Mm-hmm. The music you just make by sound, that was just sort of, you know, anyone could do that. But, uh, but you know, the true philosophers, true musicians were not people who made music. True musicians were people who talked about Mm. music. And so I like to say to many of my students, many of whom are majors in in performance, you know, vocal performance, piano performance, and different instruments. I'm a historical musicologist, and I say, I am the only true musician in this room (laughs) because I talk about music where you only make it. Mm. (laughs) And you've spoken about this concept of musica mundana as foundational or like a, a bedrock concept that we take for granted today but which actually underlies a lot of our understanding about life, the arts, and which is the reason, in fact, that you explored this concept in several works of literature in your book. Could you speak more about that? Yes, so so the idea of this tripartite or three-part division of music, the idea is also that these things are not you know, completely, you know, uh, separated from each other. They are Mm -hmm. related. And so you have the musica mundana, that is the celestial music that is caused by, you know, good balance and proportion in the universe. And the idea is that then if we sort of know about that, if we sort of attune ourselves to the universe, then that will serve through proximity or diffusion or suffusion, is what Aristotle said, to tune our own bodies as well. We will become more in tune, sort of the more we observe and put ourselves in line with the harmony or the music of the universe. And then that, in turn, will make the music that we make, the musica instrumentalis, better Mm -hmm. or more in tune. It can go the other way, too. You can start with yourself, and if you're listening to good music, you know, musica instrumentalis that has the good divine patterns, that will tune you as mm-hmm. musica umana, and then put you in closer with the musica mundana of the universe. And so what I discovered is that in works of literature, I'm a fan of the works of uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, a lot of uh, 19th and 20th century British and American literature. And in reading these, I found, and of course Lewis and Tolkien and most of these were classically trained scholars themselves. So they would have known Boethius. Mm-hmm. They would have known these concepts. And I sort of perceived that even though they weren't always naming this 
process of sort of aligning and attuning yourself with the cosmos or aligning or attuning the works that you make, the things that you produce, the words that you speak, you know, as well as the music that you make. Anything that you produce could be a kind of musica instrumentalis, that they were, they were working in this world of these three kinds of music. They weren't saying uh, musica mundana, humana, and instrumentalis. They weren't saying it, but they were really saying it. It was, it mm-hmm. was, the, same, uh, it was the same concept. And so that's why I, I decided to sort of, you know, gather in a lot of, of this literature because I perceived that we were talking about the same things. And so it was an opportunity for, you know, music theorists, musicologists, even performers to talk to people in literature, to talk to people um, in theology and in a number of different things and say, like, you know, we, we really are often talking about the same things, sort of. It's always good for uh, those of us in academia to sort of break down the barriers, to break mm. down the silos that are between us. And so I really welcome the opportunity to get to talk to scholars well outside of my field in the fields of philosophy and theology and English and literature and things like mm-hmm. that. Now, this all sounds very ethereal, but the fact is that it was also very much a, a driving concept for music theory, which which is why this is where you first gained an interest in the subject was in your music theory class. Tell me more about how this also lay behind the understanding of harmonic theory and how composers even used intervals or or determined what harmonies to use in their music over the centuries. Very likely people have always sung in harmony, but we don't really have it written down sort of as a, as a literary or a literate um, a genre of music, of singing harmony in the Western. I'm talking about uh, mm-hmm. yeah, in the Western world um, until the 8th or 9th century and then things that we can actually read and perform in the 10th and the 11th century. And but, so what are they going to choose? You know, how will we sing in harmony? And a lot of that had to do with this idea that, well, and this is all music for, for liturgy. This is all sacred music because it's, it's, it's literate music. It's being uh, written down. And that's, at this time, exclusively sort of the province of the church. And it's like, you know, how do we connect this music to sort of divine ideals? And so it's like, what intervals will we sing? Mm-hmm. You know, you would think sing an interval, singing two notes at the same time. And they eventually decide on three intervals initially that are okay to sing. You know, one is the octave, one is the fourth, and one is the fifth. These three intervals are also known as the perfect octave, perfect fourth, and perfect fifth. And the reason they are perfect is because the ratios between their frequencies, it's a two-to-one ratio uh, between the frequencies of an octave, three to two for a fifth, four to three for a fourth. And if you add those numbers together, one, two, three, and four, you get 10. That's a really important number. It had uh, celestial importance, even in ancient religious rites, like with the you know ancient mathematician and philosopher Pythagoras, um, is the one who is said to have discovered the three perfect intervals. And of course, 10 is a, an important number in mathematics because this is where numbers recycle. It's an important number in uh, a Christian thought and theology, you know, how many commandments are there and other, you know, importances of the number 10. So a lot of this is numerology and because those all sort of fit into sort of a philosophical system. Mm-hmm. It's kind of based on mathematics and metaphysics. It's like, okay, well, this is a divine imprint. 
This is mundana. So let's, in our instrumentalis, let's reflect that as much as we can. So we can sing in harmony, but it's got to be at these particular perfect intervals because anything else would not be divine. It would not be appropriate for the worship of God because it is not showing a divine imprint. Now, of course, this changes. Mm-hmm. Definitely this, changes. It changes because, you know, you have a constant tension between theory and practice. And we know that, I mean, we have evidence. I'm not an expert on this, but there's a, an old cuneiform tablet from ancient Assyria, I think, you know, maybe 1500 BC that they decoded. That was music. It was a song, a hymn to a, a goddess, I think. And they were singing in parallel thirds and sixths. You know, so humans have already known that the third and the sixth, which is the basic, uh, you know, it, that's the basis of triadic harmony, what we call tonal harmony, which is, you know, nearly all of the music that you play here. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds good to human ears. And, and so this was happening. People were just going ahead and singing thirds and sixths. <laughs> other intervals anyway because it sounds good mm-hmm. you know and and theorists had to figure out a way to include what was actually happening but finding a way that it still had a divine imprint you know that it was still in tune with musica mundana and and so they did all sorts of uh, philosophical and mathematical gymnastics you know well the number six can be okay instead of just the number four or well we can add this or we can have hierarchies so we can use something that is not a perfect sound, something maybe that's a little dissonant, as long as it resolves to a consonance. And that way it's kind of like, you know, sin leading to salvation or tension going to release. And again, this is the basis of the modern, you know, tonal system that sort of dominates uh, music today and has for the last four or five hundred years. So that's what they're trying to do and sort of moving forward with that to sort of envelop within theory what is allowed in practice. And this was a concern even up to, for instance, the time of Bach, where we see uh, that there was a concern for tuning systems, which mm-hmm. is why we have his well-tempered clavier. That sort of gives us an idea of the kind of tuning concerns that were uh, prevalent during his time. You mentioned something about tuning as well in your book. Yeah, there's there's a kind of a fascinating thing, because you think of, think of uh, the perfect intervals, and you would think that all things that are perfect can coexist think of the Trinity, you know, we have three perfect persons and one perfect consciousness or body or or however we talk about sort of uh, Trinitarian theology. But you have the perfect octave on one hand, and then you have the perfect fifth on another, the first two perfect intervals that cannot coexist. Think of tuning a piano or tuning an organ or tuning an instrument, but a piano particularly, you start from the, the lowest key, let's say the A at the very bottom of the piano, and then you tune the next A at a two to one ratio, a perfect octave, then the next one A at a two to one ratio to that previous pitch, and you go all the way through all the A's on the piano, and you're like, great, all right, so now all the A notes on the piano are in tune. It's like, well, now let's do it in fifths. You go A to E, E to B, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would assume that when you get to the top of the piano, they sort of meet again. And, uh, you know, the circle is complete. Uh, The perfection uh, works. But it doesn't work. Mathematically, it cannot work. You end up with a little too much by the time you tune the fifths. It's a little higher than that last octave. And it sounds awful if you play that last fifth (laughs) in tune with the octave so much they call it the wolf the wolf <laughs> fifth. And so um, you know, Bach and composers er, before and after him mm-hmm. were like, well, okay, well, how do we take this discrepancy and 
sort of distributed among the different notes so that most stuff will sound good and some stuff will sound eh, maybe not so good. And there are some keys that we just avoid altogether because they're going to sound <laughs> horrible. And eventually we get with what we have today is we take that discrepancy, divide it by 12. And, uh, and so mm-hmm. every interval that we use uh, in the equal tempered system today is just a tiny bit out of tune and we've just trained our ears uh, to accept it. But theorists, they knew that this happened and they connecting it with the concept of musica mundana, they said, well, this may be an example or an exemplar of the result of sin on the physical universe. So maybe at one time before the fall, octaves and fifths could coexist, but now sin has sort of wrenched things out of tune, as it were, in the mundana, and, and, and so they don't. And so maybe, maybe after the restoration, maybe in heaven, then we can sing, you know, all fifths and all octaves in tune again. And they even say, you know, this is one of the things that sort of God in his infinite wisdom has chosen for us not to be able to understand or not to be able to overcome, you know, sort of in our sinful world. So that's sort of the theological interpretation of that musical thing, but connecting very cleanly with that idea of musica mundana, that there was some imperfect there. This, is, of course, does not include God himself, but some imperfection in the universe itself that showed itself, that sort of echoes down into the instrumentales. Do you think that these concepts are useful or helpful to recover somewhat in the way that we appreciate music? It's certainly used in arguments about music. What do we say if we have children? What do we say about their music? And if we have parents, which we all did, what did they say about our music? That's just noise, or that's horrible, or, you know, that music is evil. And even though they're just saying that they dislike it on an aesthetic level, they are still making a very Boethian argument. They're saying your music does not align with the model of the universe, according to me. Mm-hmm. Um, according to me, you know, your music does not attune with the musica, the musica mundana. And usually, you know, I'd say for most people, the musica mundana, you know, what is considered good music, whatever was popular when you were a teenager, and then it, <laughs> and then it stops, and, uh, and then and then the next generation comes along and ruins it. But it's funny because um, you go back to Aristotle, mm-hmm. and Aristotle is talking about the importance of music in the training of the youth, even in his day. And he is very much a grumpy old man saying like, oh, the kids these days, they will do nothing unless it's sweetened with pleasure. So we have to use music in education. So he's complaining about you kids and your music even 3,000 years ago. So I think it's an important concept today because it is a argument that is still being made, even though we have to sort of dig a couple of layers down into the culture to realize that we are indeed making that argument.